everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the SportsMap podcast. My name's Nick Kane. This is the podcast where we talk all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. I'm truly excited about sharing today's episode in which we chatted to one of the most prominent knee surgeons in Australia, if not the world, and the choice for all the top athletes when it comes to knee issues in Dr. Julian Feller. Before I introduce Julian, we've had plenty of developments over at the Sports Map in the last month. We've postponed the difficult foot and ankle masterclass to the 13th and 14th of March 2021 due to COVID restrictions. This course is in Melbourne. There are less than 15 spots available, uh, so plenty of time to jump on board and see the all-star lineup, which features Jill Cook, Sue Mays, Simon Bartold, Ben Ray Smith, Stuart Eimer, and Jeffrey Timms. Virtual access is also available for those who can't make it face-to-face. Uh, we've also recently announced two new events for 2021. We're really excited about bringing the Upper Limb Rehabilitation in Sport course to the Gold Coast on the 30th and 31st of October 2021. This features Hamish McCauley, Bruce Rawson, Kylie Holt, Phil Cousins, Andrew McGough with one more presenter to be announced. And we also have the Athletic Groin Pain Symposium in Sydney earlier that month on the 16th and 17th of October. That currently features Steve Saunders, Martin Wallen, Andrea Mosley, Andrew Wallace, with a couple soon to be announced to round that out. We also have a brand new masterclass video now available, and that's on ACL rehabilitation with elite sports physio Tim McGrath. Tim also holds a PhD on ACL rehab, so full of fantastic insights. Check that out along with all our um, past videos and upcoming events at sportsmap.com.au. Now, for those who may not have heard of Julian, he's an orthopedic surgeon in Melbourne with Orthosport Victoria and is the first choice for all the top athletes for surgical opinions of the knee. He has a long involvement in clinical research and is currently an adjunct professor in the Faculty of Health Science at La Trobe University. He's published extensively, written chapters in books and spoken internationally at conferences. He's been referred to as a miracle worker by many of his athletes and this is evident as I walk through his office at Orthosport. You can read the personal notes that are framed and pictures on the wall from sporting royalty of the likes of James Hurd, Michael Clark, Nick Rewalt, all crediting Julian for their return and eventual on-field success. And finally, we wanted to dedicate this episode to a good friend and colleague of mine in Dr. Bruce Reed. Uh, Bruce sadly passed away three weeks ago after a battle with cancer. He spoke at a sports map event years back, simply passing on his clinical pearls from his years of experience. He thrived on educating, he had a real passion for medicine, and he truly cared for all his patients and, and their families and extended families. He loved his work as a doctor and it showed. Uh, I guess we, we touch on this later uh, briefly in today's podcast. Uh, Bruce was also a good friend of Julian's. Um, we'll certainly miss him, and this is just a small tribute to Bruce. So condolences to all his friends and family. We hope you enjoy this podcast with Dr. Julian Feller. Welcome, Julian. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. And it's fantastic to have you uh, here to sort of give some of your experience and knowledge on to all our listeners and largely uh, physio and rehab specialists, but I guess they'll take a lot away from what you have to say. Hopefully we can. Beautiful. So I wanted to dedicate this episode to a, a good mutual friend of ours in Bruce Reed. Bruce was a a prominent doctor here in Melbourne and at the Essen Football Club and was a really good mentor of mine and I learned a lot from him. Um, he was always good fun, a great entertainer, always up for a laugh and if you ever had any patient with any degree of a, a knee issue that he needed an opinion on, he'd only ever speak to one surgeon and that was you uh, and you were good, good friends with him as well. Yeah, look, I was very good friends with him and obviously it's still pretty raw. He only passed away a couple of weeks ago. Um, a lot's been written about him, said about him, but... I think the word legend really is appropriate for him. 
He was really chuffed. He told me, he came around to my place a few weeks before he died, we were going to go for a walk, but it was pretty obvious at that time that, you know, walking wasn't really on. So we just sat in the back garden having a coffee and I was sworn to secrecy that he'd been made a legend at um, Essendon. And fortunately that was announced publicly before he died, but he was really proud of that. And I said, well, you genuinely are a legend. I mean, there's no one else who's done what he's done in footy as a club doctor. There never will be anyone in that sort of environment doesn't exist anymore when someone's going to be involved for so long. And But on top of that, his whole persona, his personality, that's what really made him a legend. He was just a really great doctor in the broadest sort of sense. He understood footy. Um, he understood footy clubs. He was loyal. He was an unbelievably hard worker. And it didn't matter who you were. You know, if you played one game in the seconds at Essendon, you still got the same attention and treatment um, even after you'd left the club. So it was all, you're always part of Bruce's family and your family was part of the family that he looked after. So he'd treat players and their partners and their kids and their parents and nothing was ever too much trouble. Uh, he was a really fantastic guy and um, everything that's been said about him is good, but it probably doesn't genuinely show the sort of person he was. And I saw a lot of him in the last couple of years and uh, in particular, but our, you know, our friendship goes back decades. But I was very lucky. I really appreciate the fact that, you know, we were able to say goodbye to each other just a few days before he died. I went around and saw him and, you know, we had things we wanted to say to each other and it's probably one of those sort of moments I'll always treasure. Mm. So, yes, I'm more than happy to dedicate this to, to Reedy. He was a really great guy. To... to- Move on a little bit from that and, and chat around knees, and we don't sort of uh, keen to chat not just ACL, but a little bit around uh, other pathologies around the knee. Uh, and we do have quite a few questions, so I'll sort of fire away. And I guess to, to kick us off around sort of more recent developments in the surgical approach to ACL, I know the lateral tenodesis is something you may do. Can you explain uh, your thoughts on that? And I guess why surgeons may use this technique? There's not really many new ideas in orthopedics. You know, if you go back 30 years, which is basically an orthopedic lifetime, um, you'll find that a lot of the ideas that are current now are current back then. And I think people tend to forget, but lateral extraarticular tenodesis is, to, in summary, is taking a bit of the iliotibial band and redirecting it so it goes deep to the lateral collateral ligament. And you can do it two ways. Probably doesn't matter a lot for the moment, but once you redirect that strip of iliotibial band deep to the lateral collateral ligament instead of it being superficial, it essentially lines up with the ACL um, in terms of the intra-articular alignment of the ACL. So you're getting a second ACL um, that takes up tension as the tibia rotates, presumably a little bit earlier than the ACL takes up tension. That's the concept of it. Originally, it was designed when people were trying to understand ACL insufficiency as a concept. And there were two approaches. One was to try and recreate or repair the ACL. And the other was to compensate for so-called antralateral rotatory instability by doing something on the outside of the knee, hence the extra articular part of the description. As a standalone procedure, it doesn't hold up. It's not enough to give you stability. And there are a whole lot of procedures described back through the 60s and 70s. It was used in combination with ACL reconstruction 
and also in combination with revision ACL reconstruction. But in 1990, when I was doing my last year of orthopedic training at the Austin, my mentor, well, he wasn't my mentor then, but he became my mentor, John Bartlett, was doing, he taught me to do an ACL reconstruction with a lateral extra-articular tenodesis as a routine. And I've given a talk over the years about how far have we actually come in the last 25 years, 26 years, each year another year gets added. But if you look at the operation we did then, it was a patella tendon graft um, with a lateral tenodesis. For the surgically minded, it was outside in drilling of the femur or the femoral tunnel, which meant we got really good anatomical alignment. And that gave very good results, but it was quite a big operation. And what happened then was lateral extra-articular tenodesis sort of fell out of favour because it adds a fair bit to the rehab, particularly back then. And the results just didn't seem to be worth the extra effort. It wasn't adding anything obvious. And so it sort of fell away a bit. Um, I'd always had it in my armamentarium and would use it occasionally for really loose revision ACL knees. And then probably... About 2012, 2013, we started realising that there's a very high risk of people having an ACL reconstruction, and they're the people under 20. And we, particularly in males, at least in our population, but in some other studies in females, you're getting re-injury rates of up to sort of 30% or 40%, which is incredibly high, not just graft ruptures, but also ACL injuries on the other knee. But in terms of the graft ruptures, you're talking sort of re-injury rates of 20, 25% in that population. So one approach was to see whether adding a lateral extra-articular tenodesis would reduce that graft rupture rate. And I've just recently had a look at the very first 25 patients in whom I did an AC, <coughs> sorry, did a lateral tenodesis with an ACL reconstruction right from the outset and we've submitted it for publication, hopefully it gets up. But in those 25 patients followed up for a minimum of two years, there's only been one graft rupture. So that, you know, it's not a big number of patients, but the low rate of graft ruptures is impressive because these were patients who were deemed to be super high risk, not moderately, um, mostly playing sport at the elite level, quite a few AFL footballers in it, um, as well as elite level basketball and skiing and soccer um, so that's looking very promising at the moment and there's this big study called the stability study and that was an in, a multi-center study in Europe and Canada and they reported a reduction in re-injury from 11% to 4% um, overall in a population who was deemed well I'd call them moderately high risk rather than yeah. super high risk yeah. so I think you'll see it more and more yep. but it'll that's be science. just like it was back when I was taught how to do it the first time. It's yep. like a pendulum. We'll go too far and do too many and realise we don't need to do quite so many. Yep. But it's it's picking the right patient because yep. it certainly adds to the rehab. It makes it a bit harder to get knee extension yep. in the first three months. Okay. So that was my next question really around that. Does it change the rehab at the moment in the way you're doing or we're doing it? In principle, it doesn't change the rehab. It just means you need to understand that the rehab's going to be, it's, be a bit slower. They are sore yep. on over the... Um, the tenodesis, and that manifests itself as difficulty getting extension. I've always been a big believer in getting good active terminal extension early on. I think that makes a difference to recovery. I know there's differing views about that, but it's always been a focus of mine, and I haven't really seen 
a good reason to change that, but I've certainly noticed that some people will struggle a bit more with the lateral tenodesis. Now, you mentioned graft there as well and, and how patella tendon seems to be a little bit, maybe it's out of favour, a little bit related to some of the anterior knee pain that may be associated with it. Um, and would you say now there's a bit more of a trend towards using like the quads tendon graft over the hamstring? And if so, why and and I guess what are you sort of analyse and use in your decision-making around what you're going to use? It really depends which country you're working in, in terms of which grafts are the most popular. Um, in Australia, we still tend to stick with autographs, and I, I, that's certainly my preference. In the US, there's a large proportion of patients who'd have an allograft or a cadaver graft. But if we're talking about autographs, in Australia, hamstring is clearly the, the number one or the most commonly used. Yeah. The re-injury rates that certainly we reported and the stability study was talking about were with patients who'd had hamstring grafts. So we know there's a high re-injury rate in young people who have a hamstring ACL reconstruction. Whether that applies with patella tendon or quads tendon, I don't think we quite know. A lot of people would say patella tendon probably is better in terms of a lower re-injury, re-injury rate and there's some um, registry data that supports that. But as you say, that there's always been this concern about anterior knee pain, particularly at the inferior pole of the patella. In the past, when I did 100% patella tendon grafts, I just told people up front, you'll get pain at the front of your knee. It'll be there around eight to 10 months after surgery. It'll gradually go away and you'll be fine. And that broadly is true. But I think what's happened, at, particularly at the elite level, the training loads have gone up. So we see more patellar pain. And because the loads are higher, it seems a bit harder to get rid of it. There's pressure in terms of return to play as well. Quads tendon's been around for a long time. It's not new. Again, it's the same old story. If you look back, it's been there. In Europe, probably more than other parts of the world, I've been using quads tendon uh, from about 2014 or 2015 onwards. Um, Not as my preferred graft, but as an alternative. And one, it was all part of my attempts to try and reduce this um, re-injury rate. And so I've been using a soft tissue quads graft, partial thickness of the quads tendon. It gives you a nice piece of tendon. Um, One of the issues with it is getting a long enough tendon to get adequate fixation in the tunnels. And so recently I've changed how I actually fix the graft. I think there's newer options that mean you can avoid using an interference screw. And this is sort of getting more technical, but you you need a longer graft if you're going to use an interference screw. And quads tendon isn't always a very long graft, Um, but I think we can get around that. And so I see quads tendon in my practice at the moment as being where I might otherwise have used a patella tendon, um, but I'm concerned about anterior knee pain, so I'll use a quads tendon. Uh, how important do you think some of the reported anatomical risk factors for ACL are, and how would you assess for these if so? So I guess I'm talking here with respect to things like femoral notch, tibial slope, uh, ACL volume or diameter, ligamentous laxity. A lot of these things are sort of out there as risk factors and are quoted without much evidence. If you take them one by one, if you look at bony factors, so the notch width, the way the bones develop, the size of the notch is determined by the size of the ACL and the PCL. So if you have a small ACL, you get a small notch because the bones actually develop around the soft tissues. 
And so whether a narrow notch or a small notch is the problem or whether it's actually a small ACL that's the problem is a bit hard to tease out. Um, so I, I'm not convinced that a narrow notch in itself is a risk factor. It's probably associated with a smaller ACL. Tibial slope um, is probably a risk factor. So the steeper your tibial, posterior tibial slope, the greater the forces on the ACL or the ACL graft. To change the tibial slope involves an osteotomy, so cutting the bone and taking the slope out of it. It can be done, but it seems like a big step to take for a primary or a, even a revision ACL. Maybe by the time you get to your second or third revision, you might take on a osteotomy as well, but we know that is a definite risk factor. Um, Ligamentous laxity is cited as a risk factor with very little evidence. And in fact, we're just looking at that in our group at the moment, um, looking at Baton scores as a sign of either joint laxity or ligament laxity. They're probably not quite the same thing. And seeing whether that correlates with re-injury rates and the evidence at the moment, it's, we're still doing a bit of work on it, but would suggest that it's not really a risk factor. Um, hyperextension of the knee is always thought to be or reported as a risk factor. Don Shawborn many years ago showed that getting back to full recovatum consistent with the opposite knee does not put your knee at increased risk of graft rupture. So I think a lot of these things, although they're quoted as being risk factors, probably aren't. Family history is interesting. 25% um, of people who turn up with an ACL tear have someone in their family who's had an ACL rupture. That's a pretty high number. Yeah. But yeah. I, whether that's genetic or whether it's just that they come from an environment that plays sports to put your ACL at risk is yeah. hard to separate. Um, what about uh, like correct position of the bone tunnels in the ACL graft? How critical is this for you as a surgeon to look at it? And how much in, in, do you look at it more when we're talking in a revision? Surgeons spend hours and hours and hours talking about where to put the bone tunnels. One of the problems is we probably don't put the tunnel quite where we think we're putting it. Um, over the years, the ideal position has changed concepts about the ideal position have changed. There are some studies, there's a, thing, a group called the Moon Group from the US who've taken a lot of surgeons who do ACL reconstructions and looked at their outcomes. And one of the factors that does not influence the outcome is which surgeon did your operation, which is very deflating for a surgeon. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think, look, if the tunnels are really bad, that probably compromises the outcome and increases the risk of re-injury. Yeah. Um, ironically, in some ways, if it's the, the graft is in a really bad position, it's not seeing any stress, so it may not rupture, but the person doesn't have the stability. When it comes to revision, it can be a problem when, if the tunnels are, are really bad, it's easy because they're out of play and you just drill a new tunnel. Mm -hmm. If they're in what you think is a good position, that's obviously fine. Um, if they're sort of halfway, that's where you might need to get into the situation of a so-called two-stage revision where the first stage is cleaning up the knee, taking out remnants of the old graft, cleaning up the tunnels, putting bone graft into them, and then going away for four months, coming back and doing your revision. 
Thank you to Kangatech for the support of this podcast. For those who don't know, Kangatech is an Australian sports technology company originally born out of the North Melbourne Football Club in the AFL. Since releasing its second generation technology in mid-2019, the company has seen significant growth with their technology now used by some of the world's highest profile sporting teams across many codes such as the NFL, NBA, NHL, NCAA, EPL and of course the AFL. The KT360 testing and training platform consists of a portable, adaptable, fixed-frame dynamometry system that allows for accurate and reliable measurements of isolated neuromuscular strength, endurance, and control. The advanced software analytics allows sport-specific profiling to understand both injury risk and guide appropriate interventions. Accompanying the KT360 software platform consists of both the testing and training modules, so the athletes can work on training stimulus such as a control, strength, hypertrophy, endurance, pain modulation, and also time and attention. Further information on Kangatech, head over to their website at kangatech.com, that's K-A-N-G-A-T-E-C-H, or you can email them at how at kangatech.com. Often in our, when we see an ACL mechanism, they experience like significant bone bruising at the time of the injury. Uh, and I guess it's been proposed that trauma to the subchondral bone like kickstarts a accelerated degenerative process, uh, obviously fast-tracking somewhat on a continuum to OA. Uh, what do you make of this and what are the long-term outcomes, in your opinion, of the acute bone bruising that is happening in the ACL injuries? Bone bruising is really common, obviously, in a setting of an acute ACL rupture probably at least 80% of MRIs, if not more, have what you'd regard as significant bone bruising. The typical pattern is the back of the lateral tibial plateau and sort of anterolateral on the lateral femoral condyle and then maybe at the back of the medial tibial plateau and in the bigger injuries you might see it on the medial femoral condyle as well. It obviously comes in differing intensities and the MRI report may include words like subchondral fracture or compression fracture, which makes patients apprehensive about getting weight on it. I think that it's a reflection of the amount of trauma to rupture the ACL. So it probably gives you a bit of an indication as to how traumatised the knee is in general. As a principle, I think we always need to have the knee settled down before we operate. So it just might mean it takes longer to get the knee settled before we operate. In terms of rehabilitation, again, as a principle, you would I wouldn't want to load up bone that's already bruised. So you might hold back on impact activities, but we don't tend to do repeat MRIs. We know most bone bruising is resolved within two to three months. There must be some injury to the overlying articular cartilage and Presumably that does sort of increase your risk of osteoarthritis later. But what I find a bit odd is that the osteoarthritis we see a long way down the track is usually on the medial side of the knee, not the lateral side, and that probably reflects trauma to the medial meniscus. And when you do see chondral changes, say, at three or four, five years after an ACL reconstruction in the lateral compartment, the actual damage to the articular cartilage on the lateral femoral condyle is just behind where the bone bruise was. It's not where the bone bruise was. So I don't quite get that. And uh, But I think as a principle, you know, it can't be good for the knee and you have to respect it and maybe hold back the rehab if there's a concern that the bone bruising is persisting. Yeah. 
when we talk around holding off to impact, um, are we talking there high load impact? Do you say it's 12 weeks? Do you think that forms part of the reason why I guess we don't say running till 12 weeks, but then you're talking the graft itself? Do you think it just the natural time and flow of it or individual um, players and, and or people may just need longer at times? I think there's a huge variation and I think there's a lot we don't know. Um, I mean, I've seen p- people come back and play it four months after an ACL reconstruction with no problems. I've seen other people take, you know, much longer, obviously, you know, might struggle to get going before 18 months. So I think we don't really know. To me, the best indicator of how the knee's going is swelling. So if there's an effusion, I've just got a basic rule, don't run on a swollen knee, and I think that holds up pretty well. I think if you continue to flog the quads mechanism or the extensor mechanism for quad strength in the presence of an effusion you can overload the articular cartilage in the patellofemoral compartment and i think we do see patients who shear off articular cartilage um, in the trochlear in particular a sort of lunge lesion um, if, if we do too much of that uh, i think if the knee's quiet and there's no pain and there's no swelling with good strength i don't really see any specific time that needs to sort of elapse before those individual starts running. So as a general sense, I'd say physios are more cautious about getting patients to run than I am. I often tell patients to go and have a sneaky run and not tell the physio. <laughs> if you're going to operate on someone, do you like to see that they've got full extension or their swellings less prior to the operation or you just base it on when you can? when you can get them in and get them going? No, I'm very much that knee has to be settled down. So they can have some swelling, but it can't be sort of tense swelling. They need to be able to activate their quads in pretty much, not necessarily full hyperextension, but at least zero degrees extension. And I like them to be riding an exercise bike comfortably. So they should be walking around comfortably as though not much has happened. Um, That's my ideal. Sometimes you get pressured one way or another. I mean, invariably if I succumb to pressure, I regret it. So I guess just the more experience you have and the more willing you are to just keep saying no. Hold them off a bit. Whilst on the bone bruising a little bit, and maybe a bit different, it may be similar, but you can let us know. But the athlete that comes in that's sort of got knee pain, but he's had a non-acute incident or episode, it's just insidious onset, maybe a fusion, maybe not. But then he's been getting this ongoing pain, you might MR it and it's showing some bone bruising effects likely related to chondral loss or a chondral defect. What do you think of this and what locations are most concerning and how do we manage them well? So I see a lot of that situation where there may or may not have been trauma, but there's pain. And the the situation I'm thinking of is where there's a isolated chondral lesion. So you've lost a little bit of articular cartilage somewhere, the flap or there's a loose body that's come off and then there's bone bruising underneath it. I guess the short answer is if the knee isn't settling without surgery, um, you know, so with getting rid of the swelling, modification of activity, strengthening, graduated increase in loading, then if there's an unstable flap of articular cartilage, if there's bits of articular cartilage floating around in the knee, my experience is an arthroscopy can help that person. I'm talking here younger people in that sort of athletic population. I'm not talking about osteoarthritis further down the track. Um, I should make that clear because I think arthroscopy for osteoarthritis doesn't really have a role and that's been well demonstrated. I mean, there might be occasional exceptions, but not many. 
but this is talking about the younger active person who's got an isolated chunk of cartilage missing with bone bruising. I think an arthroscopy can help clean up the edges, stabilise the bits falling off, get rid of anything loose around the joint that might be acting as an irritant and causing the swelling. A lot of people like to use microfracture where you perforate the, the bone at the base of the lesion. I did all of that, liked it at the time, but then realised probably doesn't achieve much. I think you can get the same just by cleaning things up. And one of the problems with microfracture is even though you get fibrocartilage reforming, often that later turns to bone five years down the track and then you've got this bony prominence, um, not necessarily coming above the line of the articular cartilage, but it's certainly not going to take um, absorb shock the same way as the articular cartilage would. So I think there is a role for just a simple clean-up arthroscopically, but then the rehab's super important and it's respecting swelling. It always comes back to swelling. Um, I just saw a um, footballer this morning who'd had what, exactly what I said done a couple of years ago and then during the season this year developed problems with swelling, particularly it was in AFL where there was a period where they were playing a lot of games over a short period and that the knee flared up and swelled and the MRI, it's not much different, a little bit different to what it was. But the really interesting thing was that he, working with the, the team at the club, was able to bring that back under control and resume being able to train and play, whereas he was stuck with just playing. Um, did need to have the joint aspirated a couple of times, but he got back to playing freely. And when I saw him today, has no swelling um, and knee looks fantastic. And that's without any surgical intervention. So I yeah. think you have to be careful about being too gung-ho and, and doing an arthroscopy. But if you really monitor the swelling, I think you can get people, or keep people going and get them back to sort of sport without surgical intervention often. I guess there's probably a lot of aspects to go into this quite a broad question and such as, you know, things like size, depth, location, of the lesion, the person, the age and activity levels. Let's say, for instance, we're talking here a bigger lesion. So as you, as you mentioned, smaller, maybe leave it bigger um, lesions. What what options do you have? And I maybe limited, but limited good ones. But do you um, use things like the, the cell-based therapies or any tissue-based therapies and things along those lines? Over the years, there's been lots of things come and go. I've tried lots of things. Uh, I've really come back to the conclusion that cleaning things up so that there's you have stable edges, even with quite big defects, we're talking two, three, even four centimetres diameter, uh, or surface area, not diameter, surface area, sorry. Um, it, even with big defects, if you've got stable edges and you haven't got chondral debris, little bits of articular cartilage floating around in the joint, you get just as good a result as anything fancy. So fancy might be microfracture, it might be um, some kind of chondrocyte implant in a matrix or the original ACI under a membrane. Um, there's more recent sort of gels that you can put into the region. Um, I really doubt very much that they make any real difference to what forms. The body wants to form fibrocartilage. It wants to try and make the thing heal as best it can or repair as best it can. At the moment, we don't have any way of regenerating 
um, true articular cartilage, hyaline cartilage um, in the joint. So I think we're always ending up with fibrocartilage and I think we can get there simply without doing anything fancy. So I'm not giving a very sort of sexy no. answer, but that's just the way I see it. I don't see anything dramatic out there that yep. has changed. And when you look at the results over 20, 30 years, all these things that showed promise haven't really evolved into something that's become widespread yep. or used in a, on a widespread basis. And I think that's because they just don't get the results we were hoping for at the start. Yeah. If yeah. there was magic, I'd use it all the time. Yeah. No, I'm sure the, the listeners actually like to sort of hear that because you can, not that it's our area, I guess, to know too much of that side of things, but, you know, simple there is, is probably the best best outcome or best response for most people. I think so. I mean, I think keeping it simple and, and it's the same old story, just monitoring the rehab, just yeah. watch the knee, you know, yeah. get the swelling down, get good strength back. Beautiful. So I guess recent literature or a little bit of literature around it have found similar outcomes for surgical and non-surgical groups with respect to pain and function and activity levels, et cetera. Uh, it's also been proposed that uh, ACL could, in fact, increase the risk of OA, as we sort of touched on. Uh, and others, you know, feel, you know, including Claire O'Dern, who's, who speaks a lot on Return to Play, who I know you've done some um, research with, feels that maybe ACL we may be over-treating with the surgery and under-treating when it comes to rehab. Where do you fit on all this research? Uh, are we over-treating with surgery? Can athletes return to optimal performance and function in multi-directional sports with rehab alone and no surgery? And then, you know, the other side of that question is, is can the ACL heal on its own without surgery? There's a lot in that. And yep. maybe starting with the question of can the ACL heal? Absolutely. Um, if you have fibres that are reasonably aligned, um, you can get some healing of the ACL and it may heal back to a ligament that's perfectly fine and allows an individual to do stuff and um, do things in an unlimited fashion. So, yes, it can heal. I think the statement that the ACL never heals is just wrong. I think the same thing applies to ACL grafts and I've actually seen that a couple of times in the last two years or so where people have had a lateral extra-articular tenodesis, had another injury to their knee, and some people are hyper-aware of what's happening in their knee and can describe the knee about to go as though the ACL was going to tear but not completely going. The knee examines normally or close to normal. The MRI shows that the graft has clearly had a fright slash partial thickness tear. There may or may not be bone bruising consistent with a pivot shift type manoeuvre, but the lateral tenodesis seems to have just held that back enough to save the graft from completely going. And I have definitely seen those heal, um, both on MRI basis and also arthroscopically. So, yes, the ACL can heal. Does that mean too many people are having surgery? I don't know. And again, if you go back that 30 years, if I go back to 1988, second year trainee, Box Hill Hospital, all the rage was for non-operative treatment of ACL injuries. And the results were fantastic at 12 months. And I will say it was mainly in the physio literature. Then it all went quiet because the results aren't going to be fantastic for everybody. And I think there's been confusion about what non-operative treatment of ACL injuries means. And... If you go back to basics, you tear your ACL, not everyone needs an ACL reconstruction. There's probably a subgroup who you can say, they're not going to get back to what they want to do without an ACL reconstruction. And that's based on their, 
the activities they want to do and how the knee feels. If they've got a grade two pivot shift and they play a pivoting sport at a pretty competitive level, I think it is very, very uncommon to be able to make it back to sport just with rehab. But if you've got a one plus Lockman, a one plus pivot, your level of activity is maybe not as high, then you may well be able to go and do all sorts of stuff without having, a, having an ACL Rico. So I think it's better to look at things as a trial of non-operative management. And if that allows the person to get back to doing everything, absolutely fine. Of course, they don't need a reconstruction. It's an elective operation. Mm-hmm. And they can have that done if they develop instability. And I've always done that with patients. I've given them the option just see how you go, you know. Yeah. We can always do this Rico later on if your knee's no good. Very hard to convince patients of it from a surgical point of view. Um, I think there's a bit too much hype and about the level of sport that people can get back to after an ACL rupture if they have a loose knee. Yeah. I, I don't think that happens very often. So I think it's you, you've got to put in the context of what that patient's knee is like. And as I say, if they've got a two plus pivot shift, um, I think it is unlikely they'll get back to aggressive change of direction sports. Mm. And I guess in those high level sports as well, if you go for your trial of four to six months of non-operative and that fails, you've lost two years instead of just biting the bullet early and, and exactly. taking it. So that's probably where it sort of sits at the moment, doesn't I it? I think so. And I think, yeah. you know, it's yes, maybe that means some people have had an ACL and they shouldn't have an ACL. I think that's true. Um, but I'm a bit worried. I mean, the worst thing that I see, and I, unfortunately I do see it more than we should, is the patient who's been told exactly that, that you'll be fine with non-operative treatment, and then they're not fine and they've torn their medial meniscus. And if they're young and they tear their medial meniscus, you've changed the course of that knee for good because we know the strongest risk factor for osteoarthritis is a torn medial meniscus. And so I think it's probably better to do a few extra ACLs and protect the medial meniscus yep. than go the other way. Yep. Do you think there's an increased chance of doing that when if they're trying to, you know, push things and maybe they have a bit of increased laxity? Is that a greater risk, you feel? Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. And I think, but the, the other side of the coin is when I'm telling patients to go and try their knee out, I said, you know you've torn your ACL. I'm telling you you can go and do things, but as soon as you start feeling a little bit of movement in your knee, that's where you need to make a decision. Do I keep going with that sport or do I have a reconstruction? Good to hear the words coming out of your mouth and and just your experience and knowledge on that area, so it's really interesting. A little bit on partial meniscectomy, so arguments, so let's say this is more of a recent, uh, another another sort of review they've did on orthopedic surgeons and they looked at, asked the surgeons who they think would benefit from surgery for these more degenerative meniscal tears uh, and who wouldn't. And then the outcome was that basically the surgeons thinking that um, whether they, they thought the patient needed it or not was as accurate as a, as a toss of the coin. Um, what, I guess, is the criteria used when deciding if that degenerative meniscal tear needs surgery um, and what's your experience on it and what should it, the first line of approach be? And To a degree, surgeons have brought it on. We've brought it on ourselves because as a group, we've probably gone too hard with arthroscopy, done it in situations where it probably shouldn't be done. And I would have to say, I think some people have a tendency to tell patients in the past, I trimmed up a bit of cartilage in your knee. Now the patients don't really know the anatomy. Cartilage is the lay term for the meniscus. 
they see that player X had part of their cartilage trim and was back playing four weeks later. So, of course, that's what they expect for their knee. When, in fact, what the surgeon did was do a chondroplasty and debride the articular surface and not do anything to the meniscus. And, you know, technically they didn't lie to the patient because, yeah, that is articular cartilage and that's what was trimmed. But so I think there's been a bit of that. There's been a bit of doing arthroscopies in knees that are basically have more osteoarthritis than a meniscal tear in terms of what's causing their symptoms. So you don't expect good results in those patients and that's probably brought arthroscopy into disrepute and hence all these studies that have been done. And you can go on and look at each study and pick holes in it and that sort of stuff. Um, I guess the one that I find the hardest to understand is the so-called fidelity study. And one of the authors, the lead author of that, was visiting Melbourne and came to theatre with me and I happened to be doing about three arthroscopies, I think, for degenerative medial meniscal tears and the articular surfaces were good. These people had had non-operative treatment. They still had symptoms three, four, five months later. And as a surgeon, I was pretty confident that I was going to relieve their symptoms, which, as it turned out, I did. But this guy was adamant he would not do an arthroscopy on them. And I couldn't get my head around it because I thought, I've had a torn medial meniscus in both my knees and I put up with it, recurrent effusions, tried to run, tried to rehab. In the end, I had my partial medial meniscectomy and my knees were fine. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's a long time ago now and I still don't have osteoarthritis touch wood in either knee. So how do I pick who benefits? I think if there's the so-called mechanical symptoms, which I think is a difficult term, I've never really quite got what mechanical symptoms were apart from locking. But if there's clearly this sort of feel of there's a flap of meniscus that's catching or if the meniscus locks, that's sort of easy. That's an easy group. They probably will benefit from the arthroscopy. But that's not the most common one. The most common one is they get some medial pain, they get some swelling, not much of an incident. They'll all come with an MRI nowadays, so I think you have to look at the MRI and look at the articular cartilage and not just... In fact, I rarely read um, MRI reports because what happens is they focus on the degenerative posterior horn tear of the medial meniscus, but some vague term about chondral thinning in the medial compartment rather than saying they've got signs of osteoarthritis in the medial compartment, which is what it really is. If the patient understands that they've got osteoarthritis and they've got a medial meniscal tear and that doing anything to their meniscus may or may not help and may in fact make their knee worse by aggravating the osteoarthritis. It's a much easier conversation to talk them out of surgery. So if they've got good articular surfaces, they've got a medial meniscal tear that's causing localised posteromedial pain that hasn't responded to a period of rest, strengthening, rehabilitation, and has been going on for a couple of months, say six, up to six months, then they're probably more likely to do well. Mm. Age comes into it a bit, and these sort of tears are much more common in males than females. With no real evidence, just my experience, it seems to me that when women present with medial knee pain and have a medial meniscal tear, they're more likely to have a chondral damage already at that stage, whereas men seem to have the medial meniscal tear sort of 10 years before the chondral change happens. And that may have something to do with the fact that osteoarthritis is more common in women than men anyway. So 
I think you, I'm more confident doing a partial medial mastectomy in a 40-year-old male and in a 40-year-old female, just on that basis. I'm more confident doing it in a patient who has no articular cartilage damage compared to one who has some damage. If they've got straight-out osteoarthritis, I just won't do it. Um, so it's sort of, I guess they're the decision-making and, and and obviously a trial of non-operative treatment. I think, you know, I, I mean, fortunately, I have, well, fortunately, unfortunately, there's quite a long waiting time to get an appointment for, for me and that means I see a lot of people who come in and say, look, I think I might be wasting your time when I made the appointment four months ago or three months ago, whatever it might be. My knee was really sore and I go, well, no, it's not. You're not wasting my time, but it's a good thing that there was that waiting time because you know your knee's got better without surgery. Whereas if I'd operated, I'd seen you at three weeks, mm. operated, your knee probably would have got better, but that, not because of my surgery, yeah. because it was going to get better anyway. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate the support from West Coast Health and High Performance of this podcast. Chris and the team at West Coast Health and High Performance bring an elite sport environment and facilities that are accessible for the general population. Located at the brand new centre for the West Coast Eagles in Lathlane, they have plenty on offer, including expert physiotherapy care led by specialist sports physio Chris Perkins, occupational therapy and nutrition consults, advanced testings such as a DEXA, VO2 and a BioDEX for all the muscle strength testing. Uh, West Coast Health and High Performance is certainly the go-to for any sports physio performance requirements in Perth. Uh, Chris and the team are also available via telehealth for any of our international listeners. So for more information on West Coast Health and High Performance, hit up westcoasthealth.com.au to learn more. Let's propose that adolescent sustaining ACL injuries is increasing at the moment or in the, in the recent years, largely due to the nature of maybe the sports and year-round involvement. Um, would you agree with this state, uh, statement? And is there an age when a young kid may have torn his ACL and comes in to see you and just is just too young to operate? Um, that's question one, I guess, and, and I'll give you the other one straight up. Uh, with the evidence around increased risk of ACL injury when someone's already injured to re-injure at that age, um, are there other possible detrimental effects of having surgery that young, say, on the epithelial growth plates? Um, and how do you reduce that risk um, in your surgery? There's no question that there's more young people tearing their ACLs uh, than in the past. And, you know, I mean, now I'm starting to feel old, but I'm 61. If I go back and think about school, I don't remember anyone having a knee injury that stopped them playing sport. And if you talk to anyone around my age, it's almost impossible to find someone who remembers someone doing their ACL at school. Now, it may be that some of those diagnoses were missed, but um, I think they probably just it didn't happen. Whereas for me now, someone, a kid 13, 14, 15, comes in with a torn ACL, that's just sort of normal for me. I mean, the parents obviously are horrified, but then I say to the parents, do you remember anyone um, tearing their ACL at school? And let's say their parents are in their, their 40s or early 50s, most of them won't remember anyone, although under 50 they might start to remember, oh, there was so-and-so who hurt their knee. Um, so I think it's definitely increasing. Why, I don't know, and I've thought about it quite a bit. I, I wonder how much it's because we've dichotomised our sporting time versus our non-sporting time, whether we go from being on the screen, the kids are on the screen, and then go to sport training which may be more intense rather than it sort of being a more just an extension of what you do in the playground um 
I think the population's getting heavier, unfortunately, and I think probably obesity is starting to become a bit of a factor. Not that a lot of these kids are obese, but they're certainly heavier than what you'd expect a 14, 15, 16-year-old to be. Um, is there any that you say too young and wait a few years before we do anything? Uh, look, it's the same old principles. If their knee's unstable, yep. uh, they either have to not put it at risk by not playing sport because you don't want that metre meniscus to go or they have a reconstruction. And is there anyone too young? Well, the youngest I've operated on is six. Um, she tore her knee, or t- sorry, tore her ACL. She was under an above-ground trampoline, had her feet on the trampoline and her sister was on the trampoline and bounced. So she basically had a forced hyperextension injury. Um, I followed her till skeletal maturity. Um, no problems with her, her growth plates. So I think you, you certainly can operate safely. The concern is damaging the growth plates and either getting limb deformity because part of the growth plate shut down to, you know, on one side and not on the other, or that they just close off completely and you get a short limb on one side. I've done lots of kids who are skeletally immature and I know there's one girl who her limb grew a centimetre longer than the other limb, so the operated one was longer, and we see that with trauma in children anyway. So if you have a fracture, the bone tends to overgrow because there's more blood supply to it. She ended up national champion in her particular sport, so it didn't really have any effect. Um, Sometimes you see someone who seems to develop valgus after the ACL reconstruction, not sure I've had any of my own patients in that situation, but I've certainly given opinions on people who've had an ACL reconstruction. And it may be that there's damage to the growth plate at the time of the injury, particularly on the tibial side at the back of the tibia. Um, if you do operate, then there are ways of doing the operation differently and not going drilling the normal tunnels. Personally, I think it's better to do the op- the best operation you can, which is intra-articular reconstruction, and just do it in a way that doesn't put the growth plates at risk, which means not drilling too perpendicular, sorry, not drilling too obliquely across the growth plates, so making it perpendicular to keep the surface area small, using a soft tissue graft, so they all basically get um, hamstrings at the moment, although there's a bit of evidence that an all soft tissue quads graft is quite safe. the question comes is whether you add a lateral tenodesis. And then a very early on, I mentioned that there's two ways of doing the lateral tenodesis, which I thought was a bit technical, but you can fix the, have the tenodesis fixed on the femur and the tibia as one option, or you can just have it fixed on the tibia as a second option. I use the second option, and part of the reason is you can, you can use that in skeletally immature patients because you're not putting a tether across the growth plate. The other thing just to add is that if you do operate on someone who's really young and has got heaps of growth le- growth left, if they do start developing a limb deformity, you can shut down or hold the growth plate on one side so that it straightens up again using things called H plates or eight plates. Um, and that plate can be taken out and then let growing the growth recommence. So as long as you keep a close eye on it, you can reconstruct kids at a young age. It's a short answer.
It's proposed women uh, have a nine times greater risk of ACLs, um, greater than males. Uh, there is always a lot of media attention around this, the so-called ACL epidemic in women in multi-directional sports. What are you seeing here? Um, is it as bad as we're reading? And what can we what can we do about it? So in the past, when we looked at our populated study populations, the ratio of males to females having an ACL reconstruction tended to be about three to one. Now, when we look at it, it's not quite. Well, it's probably closer to fifty-fifty. So. Is that that women are at greater risk or is it that there's greater participation in sports that put the ACL at risk? And I don't think we quite know that. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of attention on AFLW. And if you look at the size of the lists, the player lists, the number of games played, it does seem like there's a higher rate of ACL rupture in the AFLW to the AFL um, and it can be sort of frightening the numbers that go down mm. now and then people would say well it's because the girls weren't playing AFL from a young age well that's not necessarily true some of them have been playing it from a very young age um, I did wonder at one stage whether it was being people being plucked from one sport which may be a risk risky sport for the ACL, such as netball or basketball, and coming across to AFL, where there was just the different type of or different nature of the game that was putting at risk. I don't think that applies. I think it's really hard to tease that one out. Um, but the, certainly the impression is we're seeing more women, uh, more girls with ACL ruptures, um, particularly at a young age. Whether they're at greater risk of re-injury is not clear. Um, Our own research would suggest males, but some US research would suggest females are more at risk of further injury. I mean, I think if they're young, it doesn't matter male or female, if they're going, they're in a high-risk situation, then that's when I'm starting to add the lateral tenodesis to try and reduce that risk. I think in terms of specifically the AFLW, we probably need a couple more seasons to really get an understanding of what the risk factors are. And it's interesting, you know, the the modified AFL season this year um, and the response to the demands on players in terms of limited training time and going and playing largely mimic what happens in a routine season in AFLW. Uh, we didn't seem to see more a- a- ACL injuries in the AFL this year. So it, I think there's differences between men and women, but I'm not quite sure what makes females more likely for an ACL rupture in some sports. It's a million-dollar question at the moment, mm. isn't it? be nice to have the answer. Yeah. Kate Webster, uh, researcher and clinician, and yourself have been involved in a few research projects around return to sport timelines. I have read... Um, a little bit here and there where you were quoted saying that we may be a little bit conservative in Australia with our timeframes um, and that, you know, something closer to a seven-month return to play is a realistic option. Uh, I guess we hear about um, athletes in the NFL, for instance, and rugby players returning even much earlier than seven months, so six months. Um, and here in Australia, obviously, AFL, we tend to see nine to 12 months return to sport. Um, what do you advise around re-injury timeframes and re-injury risk and 
how relevant is time or is it more relative to the function capacity and mental readiness? A lot of questions in there. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge all the work that Kate has done with me, for me. Um, over the years, we've I think we've formed a really good research partnership that goes way, way back. And, you know, both of us, I think, are pretty proud of what we've been able to achieve in terms of follow-up and what we regard as good quality research. Um, we're very picky about what we publish and how we put it together and um, I think we can put our hand on our hearts and say that what we publish is exactly what we found. Both Kate and I have looked pretty closely at the issue of return to sport testing and despite a lot of assumptions out there, the evidence supporting the use of return to sport testing is actually pretty light and because if, if you've got a test, whatever it is, a battery of tests, or, or it doesn't really matter, but if you've got something where you say, if you pass this, we know you can go back to sport safely, then you should be able to see that play out in that patients who go back to sport and haven't passed the test have a higher re-injury rate than those who have passed the test. And that sort of evidence it's not quite lacking, but it's close to lacking. And, for instance, we've just looked at strength testing in patients under the age of 20 who all had strength tests to see whether this magic 90% limb symmetry index means anything. In a cohort of, I think it's roughly 250 patients, zero difference in the re-injury rates, whether you have greater than 90% or less than 90% of quads and hamstring strength for the other side. So as a factor alone, I don't think we can hang our hat on that. There are a couple of studies that get misquoted um, frequently. Um, the Grindham study is probably the one most misquoted because they talk about nine months and strength and that sort of stuff. But that's for further knee injuries. It's not specific to ACLs. And I think I'm surprised that that data isn't in that study and Obviously, we've had some little debates at times with the authors of that paper, but I think the evidence surrounding return to sport testing is, is soft at the moment. I think as a principle, you want the knee to look good before someone goes back. Kate developed the ACL-RSI index, so the ACL um, you know, readiness to return to sport essentially from a psychological point of view. And the interesting thing is that in young patients, if you do score well, on the ACL-RSI, that's associated with a lower re-injury rate. I suspect it's because intrinsically you know whether you're ready to go back and play. And I, the more I look at it, the more I think that if you've got a patient who's half sensible and they've got a knee that looks reasonable and no one's being pushing them in a stupid fashion, they will know when they're ready to go back and play. And that may be earlier, it may be the seven months or the six months, but it may be 18 months. I've been interested, as a lot of others have been, in whether MRI can help us determine whether the graft is mature or not. And our research work suggests that at least standard MRI probably can't give you that information, but some of our colleagues in New South Wales think They've got evidence that shows it can tell you whether a graft is at risk or not. Certainly if I see a graft that's not black at nine months, 
I'd be pulling that patient back a little bit. Maybe they're the one who's better off waiting till 18 months. We've also looked at specifically advising young people to, to delay their return to sport and say, I don't care how good your knee is, I don't want you going back until after 12 months. And we looked at those results and was there any difference between those who we advised to delay and those we didn't advise? No. Was there a difference between those who waited and those who didn't wait? No. no I think it's, it's, it's very difficult. I think you have to individualise it. I think effusion, as I keep on saying, is so important. I think a good range of motion, good muscle function, simple tests like just single leg hop, single leg squat. Um, and it's not just whether they can do it, it's but the, the quality of the movement and particularly a, a single leg squat you know, don't want them collapsing into valves and that sort of thing. We've talked a bit about rehab through this at times or, and or mentioned it. Yeah. Uh, I can only imagine if you're a surgeon for 20-odd years, you would have probably come across some horror stories but also maybe some, some good stories when it comes to rehabilitation that your patients may have gone through. Um, what's your advice out there for, you know, physios and, and sports rehab coaches and that listening uh, for when they rehab an ACL or, or any knee post-surgery for that matter? Unfortunately, it's closer to 30 years and 20 years. <laughs> but, um, if you want a one line, don't run on a swollen knee, which I've said a couple of times. Um, I actually think when I was interviewed oh, quite a while ago, something about regarding AFL and, you know, why were we seeing better rates of return to sport or more consistent or earlier rates you know, what was different in the surgery. And I don't think there was anything different in the surgery. I think it was all in the rehab. So I think rehabilitation has come a long way. Um, I think at the moment we're sort of, in a sense, stagnating a little bit. We're doing these lots of tests, but I'm not sure we've really changed our rehabilitation. There's lots of, we've got lots of exercises available with images or videos or graphics to give to the patients in a digital fashion. Um, so it looks like it's fancier than it used to be. I'm not sure the basics are that much different. I think control of swelling is probably the priority. Getting good range of motion, but I think it needs to be achieved actively, not passively. I've never liked the idea of not just physios, but any people doing rehab, pushing the knee into extension or pushing it into flexion because, yes, you can achieve a greater range at that moment. Talk to the patient the next morning, the knee's swollen and it's stiff again. And I think range of motion, it can be passive if the patient's doing it, but I don't, I think it's better off as an active, particularly as an active exercise, particularly getting extension back. Um, I think we need to respect pain. And so, yes, we want good quadriceps function, but we don't want it necessarily to be painful. I don't think we should run, I mean, a little bit of pain when you change an activity is fine, but persistent pain on landing, running, jumping type drills would tell you to hold back a little bit. But equally, don't be sucked into saying you can't run before 12 weeks. Because if your knee is good and you feel comfortable, I don't see any problem at all about running before 12 weeks. You asked about horror stories, that probably the worst I've seen is 
a good young soccer player being told to keep pushing with the running despite her knee being swollen. And I'm sure that just ended up dissolving the graft. And so that's probably one of the, the worst things I've seen. I've had one patient who was obsessed with hopping. He was an older male and just kept hopping, hopping, hopping on a swollen knee. And I think his graft probably just gave up the ghost. Um, But then I've seen some sensational sort of recoveries and, you know, footballers with great stories coming back the same season and playing finals. And, I mean, that's a bit of good luck. You know, their knee just behave, but it's mainly down to good rehab. Um, The surgery is not much different from one person to another. So I don't think as we've said also, that the surgical technique probably doesn't make a heap of difference. The PCL surgery is an interesting one. And I guess recent uh, biomechanical studies have identified alterations in the contact area and loads after PCL injury, uh, predominantly in the medial and patellofemoral compartments, uh, potentially suggestive of progressive disability and degenerative joint disease with chronic PCL deficiency. Uh, I guess... Whether you agree with that or not, um, what's a recent trend around um, surgical management for PCL? Is it purely a case by case? Are we doing it a little bit more just because uh, potentially I'm, I'm reading about it a little bit more? Um, and I've got a couple of follow-up questions from that. So I think, yes, we are doing more PCL reconstructions, at least I am, um, in the, the sporting population, different from motor vehicle accidents, that sort of thing, where there's multi-ligament injuries. And you're absolutely right that PCL deficient knees have more load in the patellofemoral and medial compartments. And traditionally, we used to think that it just overloads the patellofemoral compartment, but medial compartment osteoarthritis is a complication of PCL deficiency. I think we have to be wary about doing operations to try to change the future in terms of osteoarthritis. I don't think we can be confident enough about that at the moment. For me, there's always been a group who just can't cope from a stability point of view with PCL deficiency, they typically describe difficulty accelerating and that's they, they go to push and there's a slight lag. I think what actually is happening is a slight lag before the tibia gets to where it should be as the quadriceps contract and then they can move. They find it difficult to decelerate. Um, if you wanted to use a task to try that out, you run them downstairs and they don't like it. Um, so there's people who feel unstable and, you know, who can't cope just with better quadriceps. There's another group, though, I think, where we do see changes in the medial compartment on the medial femoral condyle where they get bone bruising, presumably because there's stress on the articular cartilage. We see the back of the medial meniscus being traumatised, not necessarily torn, but it's almost frayed just from the shear forces on it. And if, if we see articular cartilage changes... In a sense, it's probably too late, but that's become a, a reason for me to do a PCL reconstruction to try and reverse some of that and or slow it right down. And whether we go as far as saying just some bone edema is enough to be an indication, I don't know. But certainly once there's some chondral change, there's medial pain, there's bone edema in the setting of PCL injury, I'm now using that as an indica- a reason to, to do a PCL reconstruction. I think you need to do a few of them to get confident with your technique. It's certainly a more frightening operation than an ACL because you're operating very close to the popliteal artery and it's not without complications. Um, but 
yeah, we are seeing more PCL reconstructions. I think with the rehab, I don't know whether that was one of your follow-up questions, there are PCL braces that provide a forward thrust on the tibia and they're useful even though they're uncomfortable to wear. I think at the moment I'm trying to work out the right balance of immobilisation or bracing and getting the knee going because I think if you immobilise for too long or brace for too long or restrict the range of motion, you can have problems getting flexion back. But if you say, oh, don't worry about a braceless, let, let's get you going, you can stress the graft and end up with a bit of residual, well, you often end up with a bit of residual laxity, but more than is acceptable. Um, so I sort of feeling my way a little bit still, but I think somewhere around four weeks of some kind of bracing is probably about right, where the first two weeks might be immobilised in extension and then getting the knee flexing again over the next couple of weeks. Most of you use a hamstring graft simply because you need a longer graft. And I generally say no active hamstring work for three months, um, which reminds me of something I meant to say about ACLs before, which is that if a person's had a hamstring graft for their ACL, it's unrealistic to expect them to get greater than 90% of hamstring strength of the other knee. Yep. We know and we've published, and Claire Arden, that you mentioned before, she was... Um, that was part of her research work with us, was that at two years, you, the average hamstring deficit in terms of the contralateral limb is around that sort of 8, 9, 10% mark. So, um, but going back to the PCL, I think that um, no hamstring work because it's pulling the tibia or open chain work because it's pulling the tibia um, posteriorly just in that first three months is useful. And I guess acute PCLs uh, can often occur in combination with uh, some posterior lateral structures or injuries. Um, those two parts of the question here, when we're talking posterior lateral corner injuries, both concomitant with a PCL and then in isolation, because they can, I guess, occur in isolation, what are your indications for surgery? And I believe that it's more of probably, is it, is it one of those ones where you want to get that done within three weeks or sooner rather than later is a better outcome for it? And Let's just deal with the acute PCL first, just isolated acute PCL. I think um, that's where I think these PCL braces can be really useful and I've seen some uh, really good recoveries of what potentially were sort of going to end up as PCL reconstructions um, but treated quite aggressively with a brace, which by aggressively meaning immobilisation. And is that where you block their flexion for a range or do you just go full extension with the... Well, with the, the PCL braces, you know, might leave it in extension and initially, but then after a couple of weeks when it's settled down, then you can let them have some flexion. But even with that flexion, there's still that and, uh, forward thrust on the tibia. So I've seen a couple of very impressive um, recoveries there, although, you know, laxity does creep in later on. So I think... I shouldn't be giving the impression that a whole lot of acute PCLs need surgery. I mean, my default would generally be non-operative management for an acute PCL. Yeah. Just on the brace, sorry, before you go, it would be a good plug for whatever company you use generally. But, like, is there, like, a, a preferable type of brace that we use or just any type of PCL brace, the one that provides that gives the translation on the tibia? I think there's different braces doing the same thing. I just yeah. happen to have most experience with the Osser brace. And, yeah. Um, that seems to be a brace that's quite comfortable. 
I think that's important because some of the earlier versions of PCL braces were so uncomfortable, patients just wouldn't wear them. Yep. Um, getting back to the postrolateral corner, um, yes, you can have isolated postrolateral corner injuries. That's definitely true. If it's in combination with a PCL, that's becoming quite a significant injury. And there you may well consider doing an early PCL reconstruction combined with a postrolateral corner repair because that's getting into the sort of knee dislocation mm. uh, sort of range of injuries. If you're going to do a postrolateral corner repair, you're absolutely right. You need to do it early if you're going to repair it. And there's an argument that if you do it beyond three weeks, you probably should do a reconstruction or at least augment your repair with a reconstruction. Some would say you should do that just anyway if you're doing a postrolateral corner repair. Overall, my experience has been that if you get in early and you get a stable knee at the end of surgery and you've got a stable PCL, um, then a postrolateral corner repair can work absolutely fine without anything much in the way of residual laxity. But if the posterior cruciate is deficient, posterior crucial limb is deficient, then that's where you may be dependent more on a postrolateral corner reconstruction. But they're quite big operations yeah. and... Uh, I'd rather do the PCL reconstruction and a, just a repair of the postrolateral corner if, if we get in there early rather than yeah. doing the postrolateral corner reconstruction. If I was a, if someone came in to see me just in a, in a clinic or something like that, um, what am I looking at mainly for to pick up that? Because we don't really want to miss that no. posterior lateral corner. And then am I just going, uh, might be this, I'm going straight for an MR or I'm just going to call up the surgeon and say, oh, I think he needs to get in pretty quickly. Can you get him in? I think if they're... They open up on the lateral side of the knee, um, particularly with the knee near extension or in extension. If you wanted a single sort of red flag, that would be it. If they've got a posterior draw test and they open up a lot on the lateral side, that's two red flags. They definitely need an MRI. I think the converse is in some ways a more common problem and they have an MRI that talks about increased signal in the postrolateral corner mm -hmm. and people get spooked by that. And even though the knee feels fine, they're worried about the report and seek the, the surgical opinion. I mean, there's no problem about getting the surgical opinion. I mean, it, it's a safeguard, really. It's a safeguard. Or a physio or something yeah, out there. it's a safeguard. Yep. Um, and it's just, you know, I'm, you know people, I'm lucky to have a busy practice, but, you know, trying to fit in someone just to get an opinion on it, whether yep. or not, mm -hmm. you don't need to worry about it or not. That can be harder, so... But there's plenty of colleagues, very good colleagues around who give those sort of answers. Cool. All right, well, that was us. Thanks very much, mate. No worries. Champion. Pleasure. Appreciate it. Hope it goes down well. Yeah.